hopefully uh, this isn't too offensive to all of you, but I, I think it's applic- applicable to all of you, and I would include myself in this, and that is that we often, me included, struggle to have hope. Right? We struggle with having hope and meaning in our life. And we struggle with there being um, a sense of, of goodness. And in that struggle, what happens is, is that it leads us to really understanding ourselves as victims to everything. And so what happens when we lose hope as people is we begin to narrate our life as being a victim to our wife or a victim to our husband or a victim to our kids or a victim to the political system or a victim to our boss or our co-workers. Like we understand who we are as a victim and we kind of narrate our life that way either internally or we tell other people that but when you begin to narrate your life that way when you lose hope and you become sort of the center and everyone's sort of against you is you actually become very angry right anger is something that comes out of that when you're a victim you become angry and so what happens is you either turn that anger in internally or you externalize it and you begin to push on a lot of different people but when you get angry usually what happens is is you begin to make a set of rules for yourself and other people right because it's you need some kind of control when you lose hope and you're the victim and you're angry then you need control and so you make rules for other people and you make rules for yourself and what happens when you do that is you have contempt for other people and you have shame and guilt for yourself like because you can't measure up and everybody else is screwed up, right? Because they can't follow the rules. And I think this all kind of goes back to the loss of hope that many of us kind of feel. You can flip the slide, sorry. That was supposed to be my picture for hope. Oh, there you go. That's beautiful. We're in Galatians. And... Uh, This is what Paul's actually wrestling with in Galatians. And what the people of Galatia are wrestling with is really where they're going to find hope and and that kind of thing. And so we're in chapter 2, but just to get us uh, started in our review, where is Galatians, like where's it written to? Where's the region of Galatia in? Very good. Good, good job. And, And so... Where can you find maybe some illustrative stories about Galatians? Like, where's the background information going to be found? Yes. And, and I say Acts 13 and 14 because it, it's kind of the good stories that I enjoy about some of the cities in the Galatia region. But you can really find information about Galatia from 11 to 18, 18 being the second trip Paul makes um, into that region. But. I like that. Now, the main thrust of Galatians is this word, the gospel. So what does the word gospel mean? Good news and victories of Jesus Christ. Very good. So we got Galatia is in the southern region of Turkey. You can read Acts 11 to 18 if you want to, but 13 and 14 is good. And the thrust is gospel being victories and good news of Jesus. Now, we are in Galatians chapter 2. So you can either grab your app 
or after 2 Corinthians, it's, if you kind of go through Paul's letters, it's General Electric Power Company. That's how you can remember where his letters are. So Galatians is the first one. And Galatians is in the New Testament, and Paul is an apostle, and he's the one who wrote this letter. So we're going to start, and I'm going to just kind of walk through things with you. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. So it says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. Now we don't know when this 14-year period starts, but it is that Paul's been doing ministry for 14 years, and then he heads up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Now, I want to just, there's, there's a lot going on in these first three little verses, but there's one thing that kind of strikes me, and that is that Paul doesn't go up to Jerusalem because he's like, okay, I've been doing this ministry for a long time and there may be I need to line myself up with the dudes up in Jerusalem because they did hang out with Jesus. Like, it's not his thing, but he has a revelation, right? He has a revelation, which I think most of you um, would say, well, I don't have a lot of revelations, right? Because a revelation here for Paul is that he was told by God that he needed to go somewhere and do something, right? Sometimes some of us have had revelations and they were mostly just indigestion, right? But, but we, we struggle. Now, here's the thing. When we, the, one of the reasons that we lose hope as people is that we don't have revelation, right? Because what, indica- what does revelation indicate? Relationship. That means that God has revealed himself to you right? And so the first thing that kind of brings us back into hope is being in a place where we can have revelation. So how do you get revelation? Well, you don't necessarily get revelation by laying prostrate on the ground and praying for hours and hours and hours and hoping that you hear a voice. That might happen. You might have revelation. But there is a very easy way for you to get revelation and engage in God, with God, okay? It works this way. You begin to familiarize yourself with Scripture, right? And as you begin the process of familiarizing yourself with Scripture, you begin to move in on particular pieces of Scripture that mean something to you. And then you begin to apply those to the people and world around you. So let me explain to you how you can have a revelation and how it works really simple. For instance, I talk to you a lot about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in, the heart, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. That is a small section of scripture. Another one that I, I hold on to in my life is Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Like, let us consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and not forsaking the gathering of together, and all the more as we see the day approaching, right? So I can take these two verses. I can take that one from Proverbs and I can apply it to my parenting. I can say, okay, am I leaning on my own understanding as I raise my two children today or am I leaning on God's understanding, okay? I can apply this to my wife 
Am I, am I leaning on my own understanding as I engage with her and try to love her, or am I leaning on God's understanding? Right? How straight are my paths in those relationships? I can look at my community here and I can say, okay, community, like I can say, God, like, am I actually spurring and irritating you all on towards love and good deeds, or am I just spurring you on to bitterness and anger? Right? Now, here's the thing. As I begin to ask those questions, the divine will engage you. Because when, when I say divine, I, I want you to understand something. If you have the Spirit of God, there isn't a separation between you and God in the sense that God's here sitting at a table next to you. Like God is in and with, on you. And so as your brain begins to process things, and guess what? Your heart, it, it, that's partly your brain. Like it's all of who you are. So as you begin to process Scripture and apply it outward as a question, God, am I leaning on your understanding when I deal with these situations or am I leaning on my own? He will speak to you. Right? You will have a revelation from God, I promise you. When you begin to take Scripture and ask it to God and put it outward towards the people around you, God will engage your mind, and he will speak to you, and you will have a revelation, and you will have hope. Right? The first part of dealing with the lack of hope in your life is to begin to engage this revelation in a way that's outward and inviting for God to come and speak to you, okay? Paul has that, okay? Paul has this revelation, and that revelation for him is that he wants, God wants him to go there because he needs to work some things out with people. Do you see, do you see what happens? Paul has an interaction with God, and God is concerned about the relationship of the mission, and so he needs Peter and Paul to get together and work things out. Okay? He needs to work that out. Now, verse 4. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those, actually, I'm going to stop there. So that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Now, it says here that some false brothers have infiltrated, right? Paul, other, other translators translate this word interlopers, right? Now, let me truly give you a sense of what he's talking about here because he's, he's gone to talk to the, the other disciples about what's going on at the gospel because there's some people who've infiltrated who are teaching false things. And this is how Paul feels about it. Okay, so along, and I'm going to swear here. It won't be a bad, so it's, it's PG-13. But I'm going to give you a heads up right now because it's important for you to understand. I went to this conference in like 1999 and there was this man named Mark Driscoll. Some of you know who he is, some of you don't. He wasn't famous at the time. He becomes very famous later on and has huge church and then it, it falls apart. But in this conference, there was this conflict going on between all the leaders as they were teaching people and they were kind of, you could see the tension. 
And so there was this group of pastors from Europe who were part of this conversation. And during lunch, my brother was at this conference with me, and he went up to the guy who seemed to be the leader of these European pastors and said, so what do you think of this Mark Driscoll guy? And without missing a beat, he said, he's just a horse's ass, right? Well, but that's how, I mean, that's what, how Paul feels about these people who've infiltrated, okay? Now, so what is he, what is he talking about then? What is it that this freedom, because what he's afraid of is that there's this freedom that's being taken away from people, right? What is it that's being taken away from people? Well, we kind of have to talk about what's going on in here, and that is that there's a group of people who want the Greeks who've come into the church to become Jews, basically. He wants them to be, they want them to be circumcised, right? So he makes very clear here that Titus, who was a Greek, didn't volunteer for circumcision, right? There isn't a long line back in the ancient time become Hebrew if you're a man, right? Like, and you're a Greek. You don't raise your hand. And the new converts into Christianity weren't raising their hands going, ah, yep, uh, circumcision, that's for me. Where do I get in that line? That's not something that they were, they were hoping to do, right? I'm, I'm going to assume that most of you know what that is. But circumcision was not, but it wasn't just about this. Because you see, other, uh, you know, other communities that weren't Hebrew were circumcised. Circumcision wasn't only for Hebrews. But Hebrews had it from very ancient times from a man named Abraham and a way God used to set people apart, the Hebrew people apart from everybody else. It was part of their national identity, okay? And so these Hebrew people who have come in and said, oh, yeah, that's really nice that you believe in, um, you believe in Jesus, the Messiah, but you now also have to become Jewish. Now, circumcision meant, you know what, but then it also meant there was a certain way that you had to eat and then it also meant there were some rules and laws that you needed to follow, right? And what Paul is saying is when that comes in, what's happening to these Greeks, these people in Galatia, is that they're feeling like they're enslaved. Now, now think about this. Paul tells us at the very beginning, if you were here for the beginning of Galatians, that the gospel is three things, Right? He tells us in the introduction, he summarizes, he says, number one, Jesus came to die for you. Number two, it was so that he could rescue you from this present evil age. And number three, the Father raised him from the dead, right? Paul's thing is that it's about Jesus, right? That all of, that Jesus died for your sin. So all of the suffering that you have brought into this world, right? All of the evil that you have put your finger into, all of the lies that you have told people, all of the things that you have brought into this world that has brought suffering and that you know deep in your heart you can do nothing about, Jesus has come to die for, but not just to die for, but to rescue you from the evil itself and to give you hope because he rose from the dead and it's a relationship now and into the future. Now, do you see the difference between these two things? If you get circumcised, it's about an outward sign, it's about some food laws that you need to keep, and it's about some rules that you need to keep. 
if you decide to just hang on to the Messiah, then it is about Jesus and nothing else. It's about what he does, not but what you do. Right? So what happens when you and I begin to get wrapped up in the things we're supposed to do is that we begin to lose hope. Right? And I think that that's what most of us struggle with in this room. Most of us struggle with the fact that we cannot get it right and we're trying really hard to get it right. Right? The circumcision and the food laws, eh, but the law itself, we all wear it like a big rock on us. Right? And we feel guilty and think that maybe God's kind of disappointed in us. And when we feel like God's disappointed in us because we've messed up and we can't get it right, then we lose hope. And so it gets, becomes about us who can't get it right. And then we just get really angry with God. Right? But here's the thing. The law is okay. It's a good thing. The law tells us something. It tells us what sin is. The law is an MRI machine. Right? So my daughter, as you all know, because you've been following the prayer app and she's the pastor's daughter and all that, and she's just your friend and you love her, she had surgery and had her back straightened out. Now, before all that, she had to get a lot of x-rays. And guess what the x-rays told us? What we knew. Her back is curved. Like, it didn't do anything but that. It just said, your back is curved. And Ashton couldn't go, oh, that's great. But can I borrow a knife? Okay, I'm going to slice that. I'll straighten it out. Okay, oh, we're good. Thank you. I just needed the x-ray to know what to do. No, she, she had no power whatsoever. All the x-rays, all the diagnostic things just tell her she has a crooked back. That's all it does. And that is all that the law does. When you go and get your blood tested, when you go for your physical, it tells you you either have high cholesterol or you don't. You're pre-diabetic or you're not. But it just tells you what you are. Yeah, maybe there's some changes that you can do, but it seems very mysterious if they're actually going to work to the next time you take your blood, right? And, and, and everybody has a theory about how they can fix you, but it never quite works because all the law is is a diagnostic. It tells you you're a liar. It tells you you don't honor your parents. It tells you you're an adulterer. It tells you all these horrible things, but there's nothing you can do about it. It just points out that you have a curved spine. That's it. What Paul is so excited about when he's talking about freedom and why he doesn't want these you-know-whats to come in, these horses' butts to come in and, 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 and enslave people, is that Jesus will straighten out the spine. Jesus will deal with the suffering that you have brought on this world through your choices and the suffering that you've brought on the people around you. Jesus will die for that. Now, there's something that's really interesting when you think about my daughter's surgery. She had to volunteer for it, right? She had to volunteer to go through a horrific surgery to have her back straightened. Jesus, freedom, we have to volunteer for this thing. We have to say, okay, we'll have the surgery. We'll accept that you've died for us. We'll accept it. Now, guess what happens when your back gets straightened out or any other kind of surgery, right? What happens is your body's like, whoa, wait a second. This was not an agreement that we had, right? We liked our body the other way, and it hurts. 
And your whole body has to adjust. And when somebody comes in and says, well, maybe I've just been better if you didn't do the surgery. Right? You, you know how to keep these rules and these laws. Like We can help you kind of feel okay because right now you feel unstable. When God intervenes and gives you freedom to serve him and accept the gift that he's given you and to be in relationship with him, it actually doesn't feel comfortable. It feels like you got on a boat for the first time and you're just trying to keep your balance. Right? And you have an inner ear problem. And it's, you're struggling, right? You're struggling with it. So Paul's upset about this because he does not want this to happen. Now, when you and I choose not to live under the MRI machine, under the, the law, we have hope. When we have hope, we begin to narrate our lives differently. We begin to think about our lives differently. Let's read the rest of what Paul has to say here, verse 6. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were, were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in the ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, it sounds like Paul's a little down on Peter and John. Like, well, you know, I mean, you say they're pillars, but I just say they're ordinary people. But what was happening in the Galatian church was that a bunch of people were coming in and saying, well, Paul's kind of got yeah, he, he knows about Jesus, but then he's got kind of muddled up. He, he didn't, he's not saying what John and, and Peter are saying. He's, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. And so Paul's not saying John and Peter aren't important. He's just saying, like, you're worshiping them as heroes. And no, no, they're just ordinary people. And guess what? Yes, they're pillars of the church, but they said, I'm okay. It's all good. They're going to go do their ministry. I'm going to do my ministry. Well, if hope kind of erodes when we don't have any revelation or relationship with God, and if hope erodes when we're kind of weighted down by the law itself and live under it and, and the guilt and shame that it gives us, then the third thing is that hope erodes when you have no mission in life, when you have no purpose in life, then hope erodes. When you wake up in the morning and you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, then you don't have hope, right? But what is Paul's hope here? Well, here's the thing. Paul has a great, great compassion for the Greek church, and he wants them to know the gospel, and he wants to send it to them. And so what he's saying to them is like, I have a right to say this to you. Now, he went up to defend all of this to Peter and to John. He's like, I'm going I'm to defend this. Now, the reason he did that was because he had compassion for them. 
People do not have mission in life if you don't have compassion for somebody, right? Because when you have compassion for somebody, you will fight for them, right? You will fight for them. Think about this. Have you ever seen a bear with its cubs? Loves them. Threaten the cubs. You will die, right? That's the opposite end of compassion. When you care so deeply about something and someone, and someone begins to poke that, you react. And through revelation and through Paul's courageousness, he's going to make sure that these interlopers, these false brothers, do not put his Galatians in a place where they don't have hope and they don't have purpose. So I love at the very end of this, Paul says, what they really wanted me to do was to engage the poor. Now, there was famine all over the world at this point in time. Right? So taking care of the poor was an important part of the church. And they're saying, don't forget us and, and the poor as you begin to push the gospel out. But if you want hope, if you want to be in a place where you're meeting a purpose and you're not living your life as a victim and as angry and bound by guilt and shame, then one of the key things is that you have to have a people you're called to. All of you are called to someone. All around you, from your family to the places that you work to your children, there are people who are poor. Yes, there are people who are physically poor, but I think this poverty goes, when they're saying don't forget the poor, it's broader than that. It's the poor in spirit. It's the poor in soul and heart. And so part of the reason that you and I lose hope to find ourselves as victims and are angry is because most of us do not see the poor around us. We don't know who's poor in spirit. We don't know who we're called to. Now, the reason that Paul is so excited about the gospel and the freedom of the gospel is that hope is rooted in Jesus, not in the law. And Paul wants that to be very clear. That if your hope is in Jesus, then you will have revelation because you'll be engaged with him. If your hope is in Jesus then you will fight not to be bound by rules. You will use the law the way it's supposed to, like a fence to tell you, oops, you've, this is not towards Jesus. You need to go back towards Jesus. If Jesus is the center of hope for you, then you know when you get up in the morning that you're sent to people, and if someone tries to mess with them, you're going to be just as ferocious as Paul, right? But it also means that you're, you're excited because you think that God is working in this world and he's here to transform people and he's transforming you. Now, this all goes back to what Corey said last week. Corey talked, it was a great sermon. You should go listen to it. But Corey talked about lightning bolt moments, right? And Paul, before he begins to talk about how he engaged the apostles, said, I have a legitimate story because I had a lightning bolt moment with God. And I was going one direction against the church, and God intervened in my life, and I'm going the other direction. Right? 
part of having hope is waking up in the morning and saying, God has given me a moment. I have a story. I have something legitimate to say that is transformative to people because I have the gospel. Okay? So, so let me go back to this. I, I just want you to think this through. Is Most of us don't have hope because we're not in relationship with God. We're bound up by giving it right, and we don't know who we're called to. But Paul gives us a pathway to that. Gives us a pathway so that we don't have to define ourselves as victims and we don't have to be angry. We can actually have joy and see ourselves as agents in the world of Jesus. Now, let me just give you a short little story that's real simple about how you can be an agent in the world and how you can have someone be an agent in your life. But just a simple story of mine. When I was in college... And some of you know the story, but when I was in college, my third year of college, I was up at ASU. I was living in the back room of Sue's grandparents' house, and I was not dating her anymore. Okay? And about the, I don't know, maybe it was the second semester of my sophomore or junior year, whenever I was living up there, I was whining to my quote-unquote mentor. I was running out of money. My girlfriend didn't like me. I was living in her grandparents' house, and I had to see her mom all the time and hear about her. And, you know, I had no money, and my parents weren't going to let me come home in the summer. They didn't want me, so my mom said, um, you stay up there, figure it out. And so I'm whining to him, and, you know, he looks at me, and he says, Eric, stop whining and get a job, right? Because I had no hope. I had no purpose, no point in my life. Jesus was not meaningful. And sometimes we need somebody to intervene, right, in that victimhood and remind us that we need to reorient ourselves into revelation and kind of begin to identify where we're bound by the law and know that there is a purpose. You have a purpose. You have a mission no matter where you are and no matter how broken you feel. You have a purpose. God's called you to minister to the poor to call people into his kingdom. You have a purpose. So, somebody give me a time. No, we started a little late, so I probably have a few minutes for questions, thoughts, responses, arguments, clarification, interpretation of tongue. Yes. Yes. Shame. Well, what I guess because when we begin to to create rules for ourselves and then look to see how we've missed those or how others have missed those, and we begin to be very yeah shame, produce shame and guilt, and we be, we get frozen. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yes, sir. Wait, wait, wait for the mic. The mic runner's coming. Okay. Paul spent his whole life um, passionate about God and passionate about being a Jew and passionate about being part of the Jewish heritage and the, 
the law and the all that that means mm -hmm. and all of a sudden on a road to the middle of nowhere he got confronted by this and i st it still blows me away i still don't understand how he formulated this you know his passion still remained with that it switched somehow from the nation of Israel to and being a, a member of the Jewish tribe to being a member of the church yeah and his passion just switched and everything it just I don't understand how well he met he Jesus well <laughs> I know that but but that's the answer he met Jesus and it changed but him. That still had to have been just, I mean, it it just amazes me how that happened. And it is a really how, cool story. You know, that, I mean, I would have gone crazy while I am, but, you know, it just was a defining moment in his yes. life. Yes, it was. I just blow, was blown away by it. Yeah. It is a blowing away. Any other questions? Oh, Russ in the back? And one more question after that. And let me. So I kind of wanted to respond to you, Ron, because I think, I think that Paul had lived out his life as close to perfect as a Jew could accomplish. I mean, that's the testimony he gives later on. And, you know, we, we hear the phrase that people hit rock bottom and then they come to Jesus. And Paul had hit rock top and had hit this wall where he's like, I've accomplished everything that the law tells me I ought to do. And then Jesus comes and smacks me and says, that's not enough. And it's I think it's an epiphany for him to say, there is no amount of law following that can accomplish what needs to be done. And so he goes and he says, okay, well, Gentiles, <laughs> you don't need to worry about this because it's not the point. It's not, it's not the way it's going to save you. Yeah. Yes. One more question. No more questions. Thoughts? All right. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, for actually giving us Paul and for giving us um, an opportunity to, I, I think, to have hope, to, to see a man who, who spoke with you, to a man who was passionate about the freedom um, and your work on the cross, to, to um, follow a man who followed you and had great compassion um, for people and for their their connectedness to you. And I ask that that would pour out on us and that your spirit would pour out on us um, and that we would be people of hope. And I ask that in your holy name. Amen. All right, there's a couple ways to respond to God's word. One is through offering. Um, this is the way we keep the uh, lights on in the building and further the mission of our community pay for our pastors, all that kind of thing. Um, 
And that is, it, it's a response of gratitude. It's a way of you're saying, this is where I'm at, this is my community, and I want to make sure that it's able to do what it's doing um, in service of Jesus. The other way to respond is that white chair back there is called the healing chair. And as we sing, um, and as we take communion, and as we um, interact, you can go back there and sit in that chair if you feel like you have something in your soul that needs healing, and your mind and your body, sit there. It's a powerful, powerful experience to have people pray for you. Um, if you have something to be prayed for, make it short, and then whoever prays for you um, hopefully will follow up with that and talk to you a little bit about it afterwards. The last way to respond is through communion. Um, on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then at the end of that meal, or very close, he took the third glass of wine and he took it and he held it up and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink in remembrance of me. If you can come and say, I am a follower of Jesus, I stand with his body broken and his blood poured out for me, then come take the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice and remember and be thankful and then we'll spend some time worshiping. And to remember, as we, as we sing, you can, you can sing loudly, you can listen quietly, but the thing about music, any kind of music, is that there's something very divine when people f- sing G- about Jesus over you. It pushes out the enemy. And when you join them, you're fighting against darkness. So I invite you into that as we spend time singing and worshiping God.